We made this. We're at episode 45 now. If the podcast length was in minutes, we're getting to the point where I'm starting to get slightly antsy about the length of an album. Hi, I'm Matt Latham, you're listening to Piggy Disc, the podcast where people pick a disc and talk about it for whatever reason they bloody well want to. As you said, I'm your host Matthew Latham, and I'm here to speak to Meg from Gin and Beer It about Panic at the Discos, A Fever You Can't Sweat Out. We'll talk about the style that the album does, the style that the album has, we talk about um, Meg's history with the album, we talk about my history with the album, we talk about the band in general, the sound of the band and how it changes, and quite a few things that I learned about an album that I thought I was familiar with, um, that which I didn't know until I started researching stuff for this podcast, and just things about the band that I didn't realise. So, yeah, so if you want to find out a bit more about that stuff, you just sit through me talking, and then eventually we'll get to the interview bit, which is the real reason you're here, really, aren't isn't it? So, just before we get to that, you're going to have to sit through me doing the whole spiel about following us on Instagram, following us on Facebook, following us on Twitter, following us down the street. Don't do that. Just, you know, we're on social media, we're on all the review places now, I believe we are, so you can... Like, give us five stars on iTunes or even on Podchaser or the brick wall around the corner in Graffiti. But just feel free to share the podcast around and just do what you want to do in help promoting it. You know, it's that same thing. Just pretend that we're good and tell people we're good and other people get disappointed too. But enough of me whittering on. Let's talk to Meg. We'll talk about your podcast near the end of the um, podcast, Meg, but I was briefly, in the lead up to this, I was briefly looking at songs about drinking and I was trying to figure out if ones that I like and I don't know if you've got any at the top of your head of songs about drinking that come to mind. So if someone that asked you to pick songs about drinking, which ones would come to mind? Oh, that's that's actually a really clever question. Um, I mean, one, one that comes immediately off the top of my head, it's not even like, it's not even really like a favorite song, but have you ever heard the song Red Solo Cup? It's like a country song about, it's just like an ode to the American Red Solo Cup. And it just, it's one of those songs that always comes, like if I'm drinking out of a Red Solo Cup, it always comes to mind. I'm trying to think of, of other good songs. I mean, Piano Man by Billy Joel is probably a good um, song about drinking in a bar. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good, I that is actually a good idea for a podcast episode songs about drinking <laughs> Look, but i was just quickly looking through i had a couple in my head and um, the first one is a song called tub thumping by chumba wumba which uh i think mm. from the mid 90s great which, song yeah which gets some gets a bit of stick but you know what i love it and uh, there's that one and there's uh, UB40's Red Red Wine which is uh, from the yes. film Silver Witch and I have to say I meant UB40 because they uh, they have a English Heritage sign outside a pub which is only about 15 minutes from me the Hare and Hound in Birmingham where they played their first ever gig I feel like I have to mention UB40 out of uh, hometown <laughs> here but um, the last thing I was going to mention <laughs> well there's two things two other ones I want to mention there's a song from the Minutemen in 1984 which ended up being used as the theme for the TV show Jackass about 20 years ago and the song was called Corona um, about the actual beer and I just oh I, yeah <laughs> I just saw that and I thought oh how apt um, and finally there is um, <laughs> finally there is a kind of advertisement that Nick Offerman her Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec did in um, 
it as part of like a kind of advertising for this um whiskey and the brand escapes my name at the moment it's called my tales of whiskey and it's basically him writing a song and singing a song about whiskey and it's absolutely hilarious which is and it's now currently my favorite song about drinking whatsoever so uh <laughs> yeah I've, i think i have i have heard that before i can't remember what whiskey it is but yeah that's a great song it, i think it's uh lachlan i it there's a there's a u and a v in it and a g um oh is it lagavulin or something like yes. that? yes yes yeah. so i th- yeah because i think he actually visits the distillery in one of the episodes of the and po- uh, one of the episodes of the show i think but um yeah, so we're not so, but we're not here to talk about songs about drinking. We're here to talk about an album. The background being, before I ask you to introduce it, is that a couple of months ago you did a podcast episode where you revisited the fifteenth anniversary of um, Under the Cork Tree by Fall Out Boy, and you mentioned this that album in tandem with another the album I'm going to speak about today. And I think I made a com- made a comment about it on Instagram. He's like, "Oh yeah, we should perhaps do a crossover at some point." And like had that written down in the back of my mind, and eventually we're here at the 15th anniversary of the album to talk about it. So why don't you tell the lovely listeners the disc that you've picked for today? Yeah, sure. Thank you. So I have picked A Fever You Can't Sweat Out, which was uh, Panic at the Disco's first studio album. Um, I think it was, I, I mean, I think it was pretty much from what I was reading today, their first anything. Um, I don't actually think they'd even played a live show before they started recording a fever you can't sweat out um but yeah came out september 27th 2005 um which i i can't believe i also i mean i can't believe because when you reached out to me on instagram we were saying we should do a crossover and you were like oh you know the 15th anniversary is coming up later this year it like I was looking forward to doing that episode with you, but it felt like so far off in the future. And now here it is. <laughs> so I guess time just flies in this whole pandemic situation. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, 2020 is just flown by. But um, well, speaking of flying by, 15 years into this album. And I and I mean, um, I, I think back, I think this was this was actually released in quite a few months afterwards so this is the american release of day that uh i think it's the 15th anniversary of i think it was in 2000 like january or february 2006 it came out in the uk and i was think i was i was i was 20 oh bloody hell um <laughs> okay that, yeah that, that that's yeah i suddenly felt like i've just grayed my hair saying that and yeah, so, and I think as I was in the first year of uni and a friend of mine kind of like started listening to them and lent me the the CD and this was the point where I was able to kind of <clears throat> copy CDs and rip them and put them onto CDRs and stuff and I remember listening to this quite a lot and yeah, and, and just kind of really getting into it. But um, how did you discover Panic! at the Disco? So I'm going to kind of do the exact opposite of how you just aged yourself. And I'm going to like admit that I was 11 um, when this album came out. So um, I was like embarrassingly young, but it was significant. I think I kind of told this story on the episode that I did about from under the cork tree. But basically, um, you know, I think like I was definitely into music Um 
younger than 11, but you, you know, you, I think any younger than that. And you're probably just listening to like whatever your parents are listening to in the car. And, you know, maybe, you know, I, I was a huge like Avril Lavigne fan and stuff when I was younger than that, but 11 in America is kind of a significant age. Cause that's when you go to junior high or a lot of places call it middle school now. So it's kind of the precursor to high school and it's where you actually kind of start to form a personality. Um, and, and like music taste and just get into pop culture in general. And so my dad had taken me to Best Buy, um, which is like a massive electronic store. Um, I think some of them are still open, but probably a lot of them have shut in, in the U S at this point, but he took me and I, I don't know if I, I think I must've gotten, well, if it was September, I think it, it might've been cause my birthday is late August. So it might've been like a late birthday present or it might've been like a, you know, like celebration of going back to school or something like that. But I remember he just was kind of like, Oh, I'll treat you to like pick out two albums and I'll treat you to them. And so I bought, um, from under the cork tree, um, which is fall boys, like first huge album and, um, a fever. You can't sweat out by panic at the disco. And I went on to become like the most psychotic fall boy fan of all time. That phase went on for like, 15 years. Um, but I, at the time I actually much preferred, um, a fever. You can't sweat out like the, the panic at the disco album was, um, I, I played that all the time, um, pretty much all through junior high. So yeah, it's a, and it's, it's one of the few albums that at that age, um, it was probably the first album that I can remember that I would happily just play it start to finish and basically enjoy every single track. This was the first album you listened by them. You listened to then, so which is apparent because it was pretty much the only one they had. And I think when I, I remember that, I think it was the first one. It was pretty much as they was kind of blowing up. But I think a lot of, I think a lot of it over here at the time was um, pretty much because there was seen as there was coming from Las Vegas. And I think in two thousand and six we were still riding on the Killers high. The Killers are pretty much. I think they might have released Samstown at this point, or it might just be on the lead up to it. So the kind mm-hmm. of goes, oh, this other band from Las Vegas that's saying nothing like the Killers, but ignore Fall Out Boy for a second. So they they sort of started um, to kind of brew in the in the background, and um, I wrote Sins Not Tragedies. I think Sun was released, and that kind of blew up. So a lot of people were talking about them, and it was more or less like word of mouth. Like my friend gave me stuff for that, so that kind of like introduced me to them as well. Um, but I, I I wasn't. I listened to it quite a lot, but I didn't become like a massive, massive fan of them. But uh, and I think this, and I think listening to this uh, in the last couple of weeks, in the lead up to this, and um, this was like the first time I listened to it in about ten years. So and it's quite, it's quite, uh, and I was surprised of how much I actually remembered of it, and how much of it I yeah. still kind of actually quite like. So, um, so yeah, so that's pretty much my kind of. Background with that as well. So, in terms of the album itself, is said. I think as you mentioned earlier that this was pretty much like one of the first things they did, and they were like really quite. They were like quite really quite young. I think there was like at least there was younger than I. The younger than I am. And Brendan Urie is like about. I think he's about like a year and a half younger than me, and I think he was still at high school. I think. Yeah, I think I read that he was. I think it was only Brian Ross. It was one of the other, not Brendan Urie was in like first year of uni, but the rest of them were like finishing up high school, which to me now is just insanely young um, to be. 
to be going in and recording like a massive studio album. It's it's weird to think about. Yeah, because I think they recorded. I think they recorded demos, and I think by chance they they did what I think loads of people do, but no one actually ever pays attention to, which was to basically spam links out to people. And apparently, they sent uh, Pete Wentz from Fallout Boy a link on LiveJournal. Yeah, and I I read that I read that as well. I actually, I mean, because I I've known I've always known that Pete Wentz gave them. Uh, he signed them on to Decadence, which was his record label at the time. But for either, because admittedly, the only article that I really read uh, leading up to recording this podcast was just like, I just read all the Wikipedia articles. So you always have to take Wikipedia with a grain of salt. But they they noted that... Um, no, actually, yeah, it does. It does make sense that at the time in 2005, Fall Out Boy would have they would have just had Take This to Your Grave um, came out in 2005 and they would have been recording from under the cork tree. So to me, it's crazy that Pete Wentz even had like it, like Take This to Your Grave, I think, did OK. But, it, but I don't know anyone outside of like the Chicago pop punk circuit of the early noughties that would have known of Fall Out Boy before from under the cork tree. So it's, it's just crazy to me that Pete Wentz had the clout to even sign Panic at the Disco in 2005. Um, but yeah, it's uh, like you said, I also thought that was really interesting that they clearly just link spammed Pete Wentz on Live Journal. And, and according to the stuff that I read, Pete Wentz happened to be in Las Vegas um, when I think around the time that they did that. And he was like, oh, let's just meet up. Yeah, I think that's kind of, I don't, I don't think, not, not weird, that's not the word, word. it's it looks like, a, like a strange sequence of events. But then again, like, probably Fallout Boy weren't, in inverted commas, a Fallout Boy that we know and had that impact at that time. So they probably was just about on the verge of be, like, like becoming part of this new wave of emo music that was about to start. So they probably just thought... Oh, okay. No, this is band that sounds like because I really like them. We, I want to hear more from them. So let's sign. So let's sign them. If no one else is, I'm going to sign them to my own kind of section of Fuel by Ramen that I've got. So yeah, and then I think as Fallout Boy suddenly got bigger, um, Panic at the Disco kind of grabbed onto the coattails and rode up with them. Which nowadays, considering Panic at the Disco now, feels kind of weird to say there was off the riding like. There was kind of sharing, like, or writing the career trajectory of someone else. But, I mean, yeah, I think that's how it was, I think, back then anyway. So, um, it was just, beef. I think MySpace was around that time, so there was probably getting some buzz from that. But, so, yeah, so it's kind of like, it's kind of like a reminder that, like, people get, like, get breaks from who you know and, or just, like, someone being there at that point at that time. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What I personally think I found when I was kind of listening to this as well was that, I've reading into reading into like Panic at the Disco because my knowledge of Panic at the Disco is kind of surface, so like it's pretty much Brendan Urie and that's about it. Um, so and I think pretty much everyone associates Panic at the Disco with him to the point now it's actually just a solo project. But what I didn't realise was just how much of a collaborative um, process this actually album was. And what surprised me was that Ryan Ross was actually the key principal songwriter for the majority of this album. That threw me for a second because I thought it was all Brendan Nury, which I think shows how much I didn't know about the band at that point. Yeah, and I think that's also just, I think we all, you know, innately have kind of like a frontman bias. Um, like, again, I, I really don't mean to just like turn this into a Fall Out Boy podcast, but because this is all happening at the same time, um, it's just the easiest thing to reference. But everyone always thinks that Pete Wentz is the lead singer of Fall Out Boy and he's the bassist, you know, he's very much... Um, 
you know, kind of, he's, you know, he, well, he's just not the lead singer, Patrick Stump is. And so I think I, cause I had the same assumption as you, um, that Brendan Urie was kind of the, the brain power behind all of it. Um, he's definitely a ridiculous talent when it comes to vocals, but in terms of the, um, like the lyrics, I learned today that Ryan Ross wrote all of the lyrics, uh, I think for their first two albums until he eventually left the band. Yeah. And, I mean, I thought, oh, okay, then, because I, okay, I think probably it's probably worth to speak about the other albums right here rather than a bit later because it's, uh, I think it's quite important in terms of Panic in the Disco as a whole, because um, I remember a friend of, I think, fair, uh, is it Pretty Odd that was the second album? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, pretty. When that came, when that came out, I remember a friend of mine, um, the same friend that introduced me to these beforehand, was like, eh, "It doesn't sound that good. You might as well not listen to it." And and to be fair, the only time I the only time I remember actually listening to Pretty Yard was about two weeks ago, for the first time. Um, so that so those words from that friend had an impact, but um, <laughs> and so I listened to that and I was like, "Okay, that's." It's very strange. It's a very nineteen sixties like kind of surfy Beach Boys vibe, and and then look, I thought, okay, then what's Ryan Ross? Okay, if Ryan Ross was the like the lyrical uh, person of this one, I thought I'll, listen, I'll see what else he's done. And he did. He had a side project, which whose name I had. Okay, yeah, Ryan Ross had a side project called the Young Veins, and I thought, oh, okay, yeah. then I'll I'll listen. I'll give them a quick listen. Maybe maybe that's very similar to this. But it turns out that the Young Veins is pretty much exact sounds exactly like the second album uh, for Panic at the Disco. So I was like, oh, okay, so that's different. And they never and they never really go back to kind of sound or the lyrical style they have on this album. No, and I think that that's that that is where the turnover. Uh, you know, kind of liquidity in their lineup basically shines through. It's just how different every single album is from one to the next. And like I said, when I was younger, I was just kind of like, I was a Panic at the Disco fan, but I just loved Brendan Yuri because he was the lead singer and his voice is amazing. And I thought he was super hot. And, you know, he's the one doing a lot of the interviews and stuff on MTV and VH1. And you know, he was just kind of who you associated with Panic at the Disco. But I actually had a friend who very vehemently stopped listening to Panic at the Disco after Ryan Ross left the band because she was just like, it never, it's never sounded the same. And the, which, you know, I guess it wouldn't because he was, he was writing the lyrics and he was writing a lot of the music as well. Um, but yeah, more more so than I mean, a lot of bands have changed members over and over again. And, you know, the members that the band is famous for weren't the ones that none of them were the ones that started the band and stuff like that. It's quite common in in music in general. But um, it is. Yeah, it, it's very interesting to see how each Panic at the Disco album changed so drastically because of just the various different members eventually moving on. This is ended up, ended up being like a time capsule for like the different members who were in the band at the time at this place, and this gives it a kind of unique place in the well, Panic in the Disco. But then again, you can say that I think you can pretty much say that every album uniquely sounds different because of just uh, of just what happens with the band. And I think personally, I think it's a bit of a shame because I I, I listen looking into the lyrics in the background of this for this. For this podcast, I think I found myself actually having a a better appreciation or liking this album more in the lead up to this because um well one I think is like I said it's been like a while since I've listened to it and they and like 
learning about <laughs> learning that it was Ryan Ross that was like the principal songwriter and exactly what some of the songs were about and kind of just read it like kind of going through the album a couple of times while actually having the lyric sheet in front of me I do actually find it quite a shame uh, <laughs> that they never really delved into this kind of style of like verses again but there's probably reasons for that in terms of the critical reception but we'll get to that bit later on but I find that quite dis- disappointing a bit because I kind of I really like the the mix that's on this album yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, I've always kind of felt the same. And I, I think one thing that's interesting to note that I read is that they they kind of noted that because it all happened so quickly, like you said, I think that they recorded some demos that they, you know, sent off to Pete Wentz and whoever else they did. And then all of a sudden Pete Wentz is like, I'll sign you to this label and you can start recording. And from what I read, I mean, I think every band said this, says this, but from what I read, it was a really rigorous, I think they, it was like three and a half weeks with like an $11,000 budget that they recorded a fever. You can't sweat out. It was like 14 hour days. I think they were sleeping in the studio, this, that, and the other. And then they said that once that was all done, they had to figure out like, okay, now we have to actually be a band because now we have a studio album together and we're like inevitably going to have to tour together. So it was like, they kind of did everything backwards um, because they hadn't really, you know, because they, they hadn't played any live shows or anything like that. They didn't have this synergy as a band outside of the studio. And I'm guessing that that made for quite an interesting period for them once the record was finished. Yeah. Cause it's like, cause you're doing it backwards. Cause you pretty much, you probably end up having a relationship with the band. You kind of play for ages before you can actually afford to kind of like create a, an album or, be, or you kind of get a deal based on demos or your live show and stuff. And yeah. So like, it's kind of like a retroactive weird way of forming a band but so it's kind of so you could say it's like a oh what's the, i can't remember what the word i'm looking for now it's not experiment like an experiment but like we got some people who aren't that who don't know each other that well presumably trying to make an album and they kind of do this in a very short amount of time and then having to think oh, okay then we've done this we might as well try and sell it now it's uh an interesting way of approaching uh in, yeah an interesting way of approaching that kind of thing yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, um, I think at some point as well, there was the, I think the drummer at the time was, uh, no, it wasn't, sorry. The bassist at the time was a, a friend from the from a separate school called Brent Wilson, who kind of then was either kind of got fired pretty very soon afterwards. And then apparently they he tried to sue them um, because they said, they said that he, they didn't do anything to it. But the, so... Um, so yeah, but then there's not really much else about Brent Wilson afterwards, but um, apart from trying to sue them for like twenty five percent of the royalties of the album. So, in terms of the album, so which so that as a whole, what kind of attracted you to what kind of attracted you to Panic at the Disco? What was it, what was it about the songs that you liked so much? I think I I mean I was definitely a pop punk emo fan, um, just massively at that time and you know all through high school and probably even most of college i think so I, the i think the lyrics were a huge thing for me um which which is funny cuz like looking back at you know it reading kind of like you said you did about the different like literature and stuff that the the lyrics referenced um that i obviously like i said i was 11 when this record came out i that all went completely over my head but i still like i just 
think that I just really liked the wordplay, you know, in just in just a very basic way. Um, and and also, you know, again, super basic, but just the the, the catchiness. Um, like like you said, I write sins, not tragedies was obviously the and I, I think that's actually probably a part of what I left out about the story of me coming across the album is that I very distinctly remember in my, I, I played the clarinet at the time and I had band class every morning, first thing in the morning. And there's this girl, Jamie, and she was always for like the first like month of school. She was always singing. I write sins, not tragedies. And, um, like the first time I heard that song was her singing it. It wasn't even like me hearing it on the radio. And, uh, and then I, you know, obviously started hearing out on the radio, like it was massively popular. And then, so I think when my dad was like, oh, you know, I'll buy you a couple CDs. I was just like, oh, I really like that. I write sins, not tragedy song and just kind of got the album because I liked that. But yeah, I think, um, it was just unlike anything I'd ever heard before, really. And I do, like you said, it, it, this album in particular, I don't really think there's ever been anything quite like it since. I wouldn't consider myself to be a fan of kind of email music or I think I was a lot more of the pop punk kind of persuasion and then but never really had a kind of genre, like, uh, genre identity until like a bit, I think, a few years later when I kind of discovered. And um, if anyone's got your map bingo cards, I'm bringing up Los Cabazinos again. Uh, like when I discovered <laughs> them and kind of got into the, in- the indie pop section of things. And But interestingly enough, that but interestingly enough, Los Cabazinos kind of, class themselves as kind of an emo band and uh and they have but they have a very particularly the beginning particularly in their kind of more twish style beginnings they have a lot of kind of verbose uh long very densely packed ver- like lyrics in their songs and stuff and so does panic in the disco and i've got a feeling that perhaps that i've got a feeling that thinking about it that this album probably primed me ready for that because looking back the it's a very densely packed lyrical album there's a lot of there's a lot of like a lot of lyrics in here and i'm a sucker for that i love songs that are kind of with a load of stuff packed into it um there's actually a a one of one of one of the many divisive reviews of this album um i think on pop matters the person the the reviewer said that it's it's too wordy and needs an editor because the the lyrics just kind of ramble on. But if anything, I quite I quite like the fact that it's like that. I mean, yeah, no, that's same for me. Yeah, this this album is pretty much lyric porn for me. It's just I just love the style. I love the kind of there's a very artistic, it's like structure to them as well, and there's like a lot of kind of poetry techniques and rhyming and internal rhyming. There's like I mean, considering I grew up, considering my teen years was listening to rap music, there's quite a lot of complex kind of internal rhymes here as well, which kind of influenced by kind of rappers. And yeah, so I just love the kind of like the lyrical denseness of it, which we'll probably go through a bit when we talk about some of the more songs in general. And and the and I think finally, finally before we talk about the songs the sound of the album itself is and uh, I'm just going to point out that if you can hear something in the background listeners it's because it is now apparently chucking every single piece of water from the sky to the ground outside so if you can hear <laughs> rain that's what you can hear so at the moment all I can see outside the window is just really thick raindrops so <laughs> I apologise if you can hear that in the background anyway the what was I saying yeah so the sound of it is kind of very deliberate. There's a intermission in the middle, and it breaks up the album into two parts. There's a there's a kind of more 
a guitar-led pop rock section at the first half, and then the second half of the album turned into a very more baroque, uh, piano-based, um, almost like classically influenced style. And I, I never really caught. I, that's something I never really caught on to until like much later. But uh, it's very, that's quite an interesting kind of mix mix of the uh, thing, and I can't really figure out why they did that. So I I actually read I read about this, and I think it was the whoever was working with them on whoever was their producer. I think that he wanted them to he wanted them to kind of go in both directions. I think, um, or I, th- I think that. I think that their original idea was for the entire thing to be kind of the Baroque pop idea. And I think he wanted it to be a bit rockier. And so I think if I remember from what I read, he like took them out to lunch while they were recording and he just like pitched to them, like, what if we um, started off a bit rockier and then kind of it like moves into the Baroque pop and you know, that's kind of like a, you know, it's just kind of like a meaningful comment on on just the overall sound that you guys are trying to go. Actually, I have it right in front of me. He said, why don't we tell the story of that creative evolution as the theme of the album? And that was how he kind of convinced them to to split it in half. But yeah, that certainly when I was younger listening to the album, that was not something that I picked up straight away. But when you listen now, it's really interesting. You can talk about some of the songs in, in general as well. So, I mean, if you was to... if if you was to pick a few songs off the top of your head to that advertise the best thing about this album, which songs would you point people to? So I think that, I mean, I, I will say like it, you know, it's the number one hit off the album. And I think it was the second single they released, but I, I write sins, not tragedies. I think it does pick up like both elements that they were pushing through. Um, so even though it's, it's kind of the most mainstream option, I, I, I think that it, it's for good reason, basically. Um, but lying is the most fun a girl can have without taking her clothes off. And then the following song, but it's better if you do. Um, I, I think those are probably the two that I would point someone towards is just to, uh, just kind of the album in a nutshell and why it's so good. Yeah, I think the well, if you take those two songs, take those two songs first. The um, lying is the most fun a girl can have without taking her clothes off. It's the song that's before the intermission and then following that. But it's much, but it's much more fun if you. But it's better if you do. Um, they are actually part of a, of a of the film Closer, um, and it's a quote from Natalie Portman, and it's the full thing. So, um, and there's a this. This album is full of kind of like references to quotes and from books and films and such. And I mean, I don't. I mean, because I think because I think it, I th- I have never watched a film. I don't know if you have you ever, have you watched the film at all. You know, I haven't. Um, it is that it, it was on my Netflix watch list for ages. I, I've wanted to for years now, and part of the reason why I've wanted to is because that those two songs that you know putting it together is one quote is from Closer, and then also I'd feel free Matt at any point to revoke my Fall Out Boy card, but um, the lyrics in Thanks for the Memories by Fall Out Boy, um, he tastes like you only sweeter. That's directly from the same film, um, so that's like basically two of my favorite bands from that period. That have both referenced that film and I've still yet to see it. Um, but they, and it, it's also, it's also like they, 
the especially lying is the most fun perfect example of like it was such a thing to have these absurdly long song titles at the time i think that brendan yuri actually said in an interview because fallout boy had become quite known for that and brendan yuri was like yeah so we basically took it upon ourselves to make song titles they were even longer than fallout boys um and there, there were plenty of other bands that were doing something similar but that was that was i think as well, I remember when I bought that album, I was kind of mesmerized by how ridiculously long their song titles were. Yeah, I think in, in 2000, that, that stuff never bothers me. Again, um, feel free to take my Lost Camasinas card, but the first album of that, <laughs> the first album of that has got like real song titles. Like, for example, I think it's This Is How You Spell, Ha Ha Ha, We Destroyed the Hopes and Dreams of a, of a New Generation of Far Romantics. And that's the, that's the title of the song, um, which I think is like about twice as long as a... Um, twice as long as a title from this album not not not, not that i'm competing at all but <laughs> but um <laughs> but yeah i think the but and i say as well particularly for an 11 year old like 11 year old did you have any idea of what the songs were about i mean um lying is the most fun a girl can have without taking a close off is about cheating and adultery whilst but it's better if you do is about strip clubs i mean i mean at what at what at what point did you suddenly click and go you go oh that's what that song's about <laughs> Like, I, d- I definitely knew it was like, I, d- I knew the whole album was raunchy. Um, I, d- I like from listening to it and, you know, the it's for I Write Sins Not Tragedy is like it's a whole wedding in the music video and stuff. So I definitely knew that there were a lot of insinuations um, throughout the album, but it was probably when I was more like 16 or 17 and I would listen back to that album because, you know, and obviously when I was 16 and 17, I was much more angsty, you know, had like my own, um, I don't know, drama for lack of a better word in my life. And so like hearing, hearing lyrics like that, when you're feeling like you hate everyone and stuff, um, I think it just kind of means a bit more to you. So yeah, I, I knew, when I first heard the album when I was much younger that, you know, it was alluding to, um, like you said, like cheating and, and all of that, but it wasn't until I was probably more of a teenager that I actually kind of, but, but then it was just kind of like discovering the album all over again. And, you know, I had always liked the lyrics, but I actually just really appreciated them at that point. So I think that was kind of part of the fun of growing up with that album. Let's talk about I wrote sins, not tragedies, because it is the the one. If even if you if even if you don't if you've not heard um, Panic at the Disco, or you don't think you've listened to any songs, you probably would have heard Panic at the Disco. It is up there with kind of the indie disco nights. And um, previous episodes, where I was talking, perhaps when I was talking to Bo, talking to Bo about the Arctic Monkeys, um, I bet you look good at the dance floor. Um, appears on like all these indie disco nights. This is this is also one of the the staples of that genre as well. It's got it's quite it's quite ca- it's quite catchy consider and it manages to make kind of long lyric kind of complex sentences in a chorus quite catchy which i think is quite a remarkable feat and it's it's just got those kind of unique set like kind of unique kind of turns of phrases that you don't really hear in kind of pop songs and so i mean and yeah it's just it's just so catchy i mean what you, you said you've mentioned this one before so what is it just what is it about this song that you think kind of caught the art well caught the ear of people I, I, I think it is kind of what you alluded to with like the whole like club night set. Like it's just, it's something that you can absolutely belt out with your friends. And that, that's exactly like I have very distinct memories of like one of my friends' basements 
it came on MTV would just play their like top 40 music videos on a loop. And it came on and we were just at, I think then like one of the, you know, karaoke games on the PlayStation, um, you were able to sing it. And I, like, I could just, just countless like summer drives and stuff like that. It's just a song that like is fun to sing along to either by yourself or with other people. And it's like, it's like the second the song starts, you just want to start belting it out. Like at everyone, you know, there's a, there's kind of a pop punk club in Camden that God knows when places like that are going to reopen, um, you know, during, during the pandemic, but they like that, that's definitely a song that they'd probably played more than once in, in an evening there. Um, so yeah, I think it's just like, it's just how singable it is, I guess. And like, it's just, it, I think everyone just has memories of, you know, whether it was, school or uni or you know in clubs with friends of just belting it out and like you said it's just very catchy yeah i think there's i mean like it's, there's just something along when you kind of like a couple of drinks in and it comes up and then like you got a crowd of people going haven't you people ever heard of closing the goddamn door it's just it, it kind of it just has that kind of shouty out appeal to it i think as well which is um great but i do i i do quite like the fact that it's I mean the the verses itself are they the very they build up and they build up a story quite quickly and I've I've mentioned I've mentioned this on the podcast several times now and um as like it's a person I'm I'm a massive fan of songs that help you world build and kind of add more to a story. So like Yeah. So this has got um so this so this is pretty much discussing like a a wedding that wedding and like no one seems to like each other there and like you can kind of fill in the gaps yourself but it kind of manages to build this uh kind of like a kind of thing where um i can't i'll keep forgetting words today uh, <laughs> where where you just got like wait you just got, you, don't, you just don't think the, the bride and the groom like each other very much or they just keep secrets and there's people around and no secrets about each other and stuff and it just doesn't it doesn't it has this kind of kind of like pessimistic view of the relationship uh, that's been of um happening so and it just and i think it, does, it doesn't go that too much into detail but it manages to give you enough for you to fill in the gaps yourself and i, I just i just love the fact it does that and I just, I just love the fact trying to build this kind of like story in your head, and encourage it, and it does encourage as well as catchiness. It does encourage re-listening as well, because as you're trying to build the story, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think it also like again back that not that you know music videos are still you know popular now, and and they still make them for hit singles all the time. But at the time, I think music videos just carried much more wait because it's just something that you would like sit at home and watch um and so i think that like you said like the, the lyrics that tell a they present a story to you but they're not they they leave kind of room for interpretation it also gives them a lot of creative freedom when it comes to making a music video because they you know the lyrics are kind of like the foundation but then they can kind of go in whatever direction they want with the music video and showing the wedding and brendan yuri was like a i don't know like circus person or you know whatever um so yeah i think that i think that's what's kind of fun about their music as well yeah um are there any other any other songs that you wanted to highlight that you wanted to you wanted to talk about i think that like i said um 
I I, th- I think lying is the most fun, and but it's better if you do. Um, I th- they're just they're both very similar to I write since not tragedies in the sense that they're just like very upbeat, very catchy, but very cynical lyrics. Um, so I think and they they also apart from the little intermission, they happen to be kind of one after the other after the other. So they fit well together in the um the second half of of the record. But Kamisado was always when I was younger, like my favorite, um, song, like if I was going to go a bit more obscure that I wouldn't think that anyone else would say that that was probably my favorite song off the album. It's also about alcoholism. So (laughs) yeah, (laughs) so it's just all very linked into my interests. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's again, it's like, it doesn't really sound like anything else on the album or anything else that I'd seen before. Uh, but what you were saying about like, you know, presenting a story or painting a picture, I mean, like this is the scent of dead skin on a linoleum floor. Like that just paints a pretty clear picture of, um, what the song is about. And it, again, very fast paced and upbeat, even though it's about a pretty dark topic. So yeah. Um, I don't, I mean that, you know, I don't think there's a whole lot of, there's not a whole lot out there about that song that I am aware of, although I'm just reading now. I did not realize that Kami Sato is a surprise attack occurring at night when the enemy is supposed to be asleep. I did not know that that's what that word means. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that that was probably always when I was younger. Um, if you kind of take out the the radio hits, that was always my favorite song off the album. That was actually, I think that was actually a song when I was looking, reading into the lyrics as I was listening to it. That's a song that's in, where I'm particularly I'm on Genius because I'm pretty much, I pretty much like scare a genius for all my um, tidbits. I might edit that bit out because that's my secret and nah, it's fine. I've mentioned Genius before. Um, <laughs> but yeah, because Genius is talking about, it's about Ryan Ross's dad's battle with alcoholism and stuff. And I never realised it was about that and... Again, it was just one of those one of those things where okay, I didn't realise that Ryan Ross was that <laughs> was writing this, or as much as I was, again, I always just thought it was Brendan Urie, but um, yeah, I just I I really quite I had a better appreciation for that song um, <laughs> quite recently because I just didn't realise what it was actually about. So yeah, yeah, I think that. I think all any music becomes more meaningful to us when we under like when you know more about who wrote it and why. Um, it just adds a whole other layer to it. Yeah, um, I was to take, I was to take the the moment to talk about. I think I think my favorite song off the album, which I actually remember this was like I think it was when I first listened to this in when I first listened to this album. I think I can actually remember listening to this song first. I'm like, oh, actually, I really like how this sounds. And it's the third song, which is London Beckon songs about money written by machines. And, yeah, that's a good one. Um, I just I I actually really quite like this that song mainly because it's again it's very again it's very lyrically dense. Um, I love that. I love how the verses sound. I love how like how, how the performance of the verses sound. The chorus, I, I love the chorus. The chorus is kind of full of alliteration. It's it's full of uh, kind of like multiple rhymes. Like, uh, so we're just a wet dream for the web scene. Make us it, make us hip, make us scene. Which kind of just like flows so well when it's performed. And then you've got the alliteration of sugars off your shoulders. Don't approve a single word that we wrote. It just, it just, just, it's quite smooth. And I just love how that, it's, it's okay, it's, it's not the most, it's not the catchiest out of the album. But to me, it's like the smoothest. And I just, I remember listening to that going, wow, that just, 
flows really well again it's the part of me that love rap kind of just like loved how how kind of how technical the the rhyming of this bit was that is the song that uh, on the entire record i agree with what you were saying about the how well it flows because all of of all of the songs you know uh, not thinking about i write sins which like you said i think everyone knows all the words that song whether they want to or not but when um (laughs) If I'm like, if I'm cleaning the kitchen or something and London Beckham comes on shuffle, like it amazes me, you know, and we're coming up on 15 years from when that record came out that I can just like belt out the words without even realizing that I have them like stored away somewhere in my brain. And I think that's because it, the song flows so well that it just, it sticks with you. I've, I mean, I'm not in a position to be able to test that, but I will. I mean, I've always had the idea that there's a test you can do where if you start playing a song you know well, you mute the song and then and then you just try and after about after about thirty seconds turn the song back up. Would you be at the exact same point? Would could would you, is this one of these songs for you? Do you think? I think I yeah I think I probably could I I think like I think it when I when I've noticed that the words just seem to come out naturally it's when I'm not really like in my head and thinking about it so I feel like if I actually tried I would probably trip myself up but yeah I think I think I probably could and I've I've seen people doing that on on TikTok and stuff with like all of these songs that people haven't listened to in ages and then they're like oh my god like there was one girl that did it with um something by the killers i don't know if it was like somebody told me or one of their songs but she was just like this is the most british thing ever that i can still recite these lyrics so yeah it's funny just how how many songs we all just have like taking up space in our brains and we don't even realize it (laughs) yeah are there any other songs on here that you definitely need to talk about before we move on i think that is all of the ones that i wanted to cover okay that's fine um i say the london beckham was the one that i really wanted to cover moving on to the reception of the album and i think the reception of the album i think is perhaps tied to why they didn't do they perhaps didn't delve into this kind of sound or this kind of lyrical style again because it ended up being quite divisive and so you got you got some places that loved it some places that absolutely hated it hated it and but then like it still did quite well and there's a there's a whole there's a whole like thing about um, criticism and audience that I think I've I've covered before in the on the podcast, but I think this kind of like I think depending on who's listening to it at the time and who's reviewing it, it I can kind of see why people would dislike it. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't agree with them at how severe some of these uh, reviews did. I mean, Pitchfork gave it one point five out of ten, it which again being Pitchfork doesn't surprise me in the slightest. But um, but then like I've read kind of blogs kind of vlogs about this album people like just rave about it and just have like perfect memories of it so um why do you think that some people liked it some people didn't i think it is i i think anytime you do something remotely experimental or veering ever so slightly from mainstream you're just going to get massive haters um and then of course like when you if you do something unique and experimental like they did with a fever you can't sweat out then if you don't do the same thing for your second album the people who love to fever you can't sweat out are that going to moan about pretty odd so i think you know anytime you you take a risk and and try to create a sound that no one had really heard before you're inevitably going to get people who just think it's crap 
Yeah, um, I think I think perhaps as well. But I think particularly the sound that the sound that they would eventually go and do, and perhaps the direction that Brendan Urie went in. I think there's probably they had new fans, probably a bigger mainstream, a mainstream, a mainstream audience that a bigger mainstream audience that they've collected. That if they've gone back to revisit this album, they've probably gone. This doesn't say anything like what they're saying to now. And there's and what and on all music there is a review from a user. Um, and they reviewed it two out of five stars, where it says easily the most overhyped Panic record. Some of the tracks are really good, some are rather boring, and some are generally awful. Probably the worst record in their discography, and I'm incredibly glad they left this saying behind when they went to do Pretty Odd. Now, I, I kind of think the opposite of that, considering, but I mean, I think it's, I think that's pretty much interesting that you've probably got some people who are like, who like that certain sound from Panic in the Disco, and like some people who like where they went to anyway, and I think that review kind of encapsulates that i think i agree with you what you're saying about how the you know the divisiveness um in in that review kind of it it makes sense and it represents that album was going after i i did like i was not one of the people that hated pretty odd um nine in the afternoon is is a great song it was it's a very fun to play on rock band from what i remember from my rock band days and there are a couple other kind of folksy beatlesy songs on there that i actually quite enjoy but i think that um it doesn't it doesn't really surprise me that a fever you can't sweat out had had massively missed mixed reception because it it's definitely it's not for everyone um i think that they didn't they didn't set out to make it i don't you know i mean i'm sure any band wants to be you know wants to be successful wants to have some notoriety but i don't think that they i don't think that ryan ross wrote those lyrics and and a lot of that music kind of aiming for the top of like the top 40 charts so and i think when like i said when you want to do something a bit different then you have to accept the fact that not everyone is gonna like it yeah i agree yeah i kind of agree with that but i think in terms of like um i mean I think Drowned Insane was a lot more. Was a lot more. I mean, they gave it six out of ten, but there was a lot. They there was a lot more fair on it and a lot more balance, which which is perfectly fine. I mean, they. I think every a lot of the reviews constantly compare it to Fallout Boy, which I think is slightly unfair. I mean, again, I don't I haven't listened to that Fallout Boy album all the way through. Actually, I think I know the singles, but um, I do think it kind. I do think it kind of. I think because of the kind of relationship they had with like Fallout Boy, kind of unfairly gets compared to them quite a few times. But but in terms in terms of the people, the fans that like it, I mean, there I say I'm um, there are, I mean, in in the research for this, I mean, I didn't I haven't listened to them, but there were there are kind of like podcast episodes from other podcasts, shock horror, um, <laughs> that talk about this album in kind of, and they and they talk about it in quite good, quite positive light. And again, I think it's just kind of when it connects with people of like a certain age or a, cer- a certain time, then I think that probably connects with people perhaps more than someone trying to critically just connect with it. So, and I think that was the bit that people just latched onto and the kind of like, and just the sound of it rather than thinking around it, which I think was what, which is what the critics have been doing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'll be the first person to admit that a huge part of my admiration for this i mean i i do genuinely think it's a good album but it's also just it's a lot of nostalgia and it's just like you know a certain period of my life that i associate it with and then the fact that it's fun whenever i do hear songs off it again when i'm out so yeah i I think a lot of it is just what people associate it with yeah definitely definitely and um yeah so 
yeah, so I think we that's uh, the reception of that was just the reception of it. It did quite well um, in places as well. If I had the things like that, yeah, so it did. It did really quite well. I think the highest it, it charted, I think, was in New Zealand, where it was seventh, and we got to seventeenth in the UK. Um, we got to thirteen in the US Billboard charts as well. It it went it went two times platinum in the US and platinum in the UK. Uh, as well as New Zealand, Canada, and Australia, so it did do quite well. So a lot of people did like it. I think it was two point two million copies it sold overall in the US. So and man, if every if everyone who bought it listened to this out, listened to this uh, podcast episode, I'd be really happy. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so yeah. Um, so okay, so we, we're getting up to the closing closing bits of our conversation now. Um, have you ever seen them live? I have, yes. I saw Panic at the Disco live in 2015. Um, I probably should have like looked this up on Google or my Facebook memories or something ahead of this podcast because I can't remember what the name of the tour was. But they they played in Chicago, which is where I'm from. And I went with my friend Francis. And it was honestly probably in my top three live performances I've ever seen. Um, at that point, I think, cause I, well, I don't know if you were going to get back into this about it uh, being a, a solo project now, which I also find hilarious. Um, but I think even though I don't think Panic at the Disco was technically considered a solo project until 2017, I think, um, by 2015, I think Brendan Urie was already like rotating who was playing with him live. I don't, there really wasn't much of a band left. Cause I, I also think that one of the members left at some point when I was in uni because he was battling with alcoholism. Um, but maybe I'm remembering that completely incorrectly. They've changed, they've had so many different members that I, I, my panic at the disco history isn't really that impressive, but, um, basically, yeah, I saw, I saw them in 2015 and, um, Brendan Urie, his, his voice stands up live wonderfully and they're just really good performers and fun. And, you know, sometimes I think bands, if you're really, really into their music, then when you hear them live, you sort of feel like they're butchering the songs that you've come to know so well, but that wasn't the case with Panic at the Disco. They, um, you know, they put like a live spin on their songs, but it was still the songs that everyone knows and loves. So yeah, I, I can't say enough good things about Panic at the Disco live. I would happily, um, I'd happily go see them again. Oh, okay. Okay. So how, how was, when they perform songs off this album, were they any different or was it, does it, did it sound quite a lot of, did it sound quite similar to what they sound like on the record or was, or was it adapted because of who he was touring with? It was, it, it sounded pretty much the same from what I remember. Um, you know, I, I think Ryan Ross might have done some backup vocals and stuff back in the day. So, um, some of that might have obviously sounded a bit different, but I think, um, you know, all of the music and everything. Yeah. It, it, it was very nostalgic. It, it sounded just like I would have imagined it, you know, in 2005, 2006, when those songs were really popular. Oh, okay. Okay. So I think I've never seen them live, but, uh, I don't know, unless, unless they're doing like an anniversary show for this album, I don't know if I would, but, um, yeah, so at least, at least, uh, at least you know that you you enjoyed them quite enjoyed them when you saw them. So, if people were going to listen to any of their other albums after listening to this one, which albums would you recommend them listening? Would you recommend to listen to? That is a very. I mean, I I honestly would 
recommend, I think I would recommend Pretty Odd just because it it's so different to the first album. It's just kind of interesting to listen to. But again, like it very divisive and a lot of people, you know, a lot of people that like A Fever You Sweat Out really don't like that album. Um, but I will say Death of a Bachelor, which is one of their more recent ones. I, th- I think that one came out like one of my final years of uni. That has some really good, really catchy songs on it that are kind of more, they, they remind me more of what they were kind of going for with A Fever You Can't Sweat Out. Um, I'm just looking at the track list right now. L.A. Devotee is a really good song. Um, very, it's just got like very nice California vibes to it. I th- what I will say about Panic at the Disco is that all of their all of their albums have something redeemable about them. There's not a single album from Panic at the Disco where that to me is a complete write off. Um, they they all have songs that are interesting. Um, but yeah, and actually, it's just it's so funny looking at the their discography. The Death of a Bachelor and Pray for the Wicked are considered um, solo project releases, which again I just find interesting, but. Death of a Bachelor has Hallelujah on it, which is a great song um, that just evokes this sense of like being basically out of the woods from something like a huge challenge in your life, which I think is like a feeling we're all yearning for with all of this pandemic stuff. And then Pray for the Wicked had High Hopes, which was like a massively popular song, both in the US and the UK. Um which is also very catchy. But yeah, no, I like, like I said, there's not a single Panic at the Disco album that I would just be like, oh, don't bother with that one. It's crap. They all, they all have their, um, they all have some, some pretty good songs. I keep meaning to perhaps listen to some of his latest stuff because he had a pop song. He came out with a song a couple of years ago um, called, was it High Hopes with Tyler Swift? Yeah. Which is a very annoyingly, which is very annoyingly catchy. But, uh, <laughs> Um, I I I might I, I might have a look at um, some of the stuff we did around that era, and so um, so yeah, so we as we now reaching the end of our conversation, and um, listeners, it has been both of us have been battling with Skype quite a bit actually, so you better like this episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> We've reached the important point of the episode where I ask you to choose a song for the playlist Hall of Fame. So for those who are listening to us for the first time, what this is is a Spotify playlist where I ask the guest to pick one song from the album to be immortalised forever on this playlist. And I can't veto it. I've got no control over it. So if if anyone wants to do a Colin, do a Colin and put the longest song on the album just to annoy me, then I can't do anything about that. But uh, yeah, so <laughs> Meg... Um, which song do you want to add to be immortalized for all time? I would like to add, but it's better if you do. Um, I think that that is my, probably my favorite song off the album. Um, but I also think it just really perfectly captures the album and, and what's so great about it. So yes, if you don't mind, but it's better if you do. Yeah. Okay. But it's better if you do. Oh, that's the latest edition. That's the latest edition onto the playlist. And with that, um, our conversations come to a close and, and it's been great to it's been great to chat to you about this uh, album, Meg. And again, again, battling Skype and its like temperamentalness at the moment. But um, yeah, and it's I I find I've just it's been great for me to kind of revisit this album actually, and um, I've kind of <laughs> developed a, a new appreciation of it. So um, yeah, so thank you for um, getting me to listen to it. So. 
No, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I said, but between my episode about From Under the Cork Tree and this one about a fever you can't sweat out, I feel like I've spent the better part of 2020 just kind of revisiting my youth. <laughs> so it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. So um, if people want to uh, find you online or follow what you do, where can they find you? So yeah, thank you. Um, I, as we mentioned on the beginning of the podcast, I have my own podcast called Gin and Beer It. It is a basically very similar to Matt's concept with pick a disc, but instead it's pick a drink. Um, so guests come on and we talk about any drink. It doesn't have to be alcoholic, but cocktails, beer, hot cocoa, and just talk about the history and fun variations and why the guest chose that particular drink. And so the podcast, like I said, is called Gin and Beer It. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, basically anywhere that you listen to podcasts. I'm also on Instagram at Gin and Beer at Show, on Twitter at Gin and Beer at Pod, and then everything is on my website, www.ginandbeeratshow.com. Yeah, and uh, so I think you said you recently pivoted because I think... Um... Because I think I learned of you when you guest starred on the Emotional Fight Club podcast. And I think that's when you were more of a uh, American living in the UK kind of like focus. And you've moved, then you switched over to kind of like, well, for lack of a better term, pick a drink and. What it's doing, what it's doing now, it's making me realise my drinks cabinet is very, very empty. Yeah, I've got two bottles of Sun Comfort and a bottle of this um, this uh, cinnamon whiskey liqueur that a friend gave me for being an usher at his wedding. And knowing the friend, he deliberately bought it because I have a history with kind of cinnamon whiskey. Um, and it's that's a story I am never saying on the podcast. So, um, but yeah, so it's um, it's 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 making it's making me kind of perhaps broaden my uh <laughs> broaden my drinking for lack of a better term but um yeah I'll definitely give it uh, give it a listen guys it's uh particularly particularly if you like your alcohol or like to perhaps if you want to learn more about drinking or alcohol in general so definitely recommend it oh thanks matt that's very kind of you and yeah thank you very much for having me on i've really enjoyed this i also really enjoy listening to your podcast and we should definitely do this again you're also always welcome to come on gin and beer it and talk about best drinking songs i would love that <laughs> i might do that yeah i'd say as, as, as i know you're not a fan of cider which is my main point and i i think i think someone who's a lot more uh who's i i i think someone who knows more about cider should defend defend it for so uh, <laughs> so yeah so um so um, I think with that, it's um, again. I want to say thank you ever so much for coming on to talk about panic and disco, and also coping with the coping with Skype as general. So um, <laughs> thank you for putting up with put, putting up with the basically. Yeah, it's been it's been uh, it's been a battle. So, <laughs> but thank you ever so much for coming on. Oh, thank you. Pleasure is all mine. You've been listening to Pick a Disc, and I've been your host, Matthew Labour. Our theme music is Pump by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Pick a Disc is hosted by the We Made This Podcast Network, and you can find them on www.spreaker.com slash user slash We Made This. You can find the Pick a Disc show site on www.spreaker.com slash show slash Pick a Disc. You can find us on all the usual social media type places like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter under Pick a Disc. You can also email us on pickadisc at gmail.com. Until next time, happy listening to all those discs that you are picking. Goodbye. Elsewhere on We Made This. 
Cine Mortuary podcast. Yeah. Right, Rob, just to laser align and realign uh, the topic of discussion, yes. would you like to take a dive straight in to uh, the X-Files movie for me, please? Yes, I would. Um, <laughs> we open on Gillian Anderson in her lingerie. No, sorry, that's the fan fiction one, isn't it, that people keep talking about. That you wrote, um, yeah, yeah. I did not write, and um, <laughs> I will sue you, sir. Uh, Right, yes, Sounds of the Lambs, Sounds of the Lambs. Directed by Jonathan Demme, 1991. Pretty Fly, a 90s nostalgia podcast. I think it says a lot about our humanity if we go down that road with Hannibal Lecter and if we kind of, you know, like right at the end of Silence of the Lambs, he's going to have an old friend for dinner. And... (laughs) Which is a great line, by the way. Tremendous line. It's a movie full of great lines. You have an old friend for dinner. <laughs> and but like you're kind of happy for him, aren't you? Like I am. A little bit. I think it's important to remember that even someone who's a psychopath who doesn't have, or a character that's a psychopath that doesn't have that normal range of human emotions, they are human. Observing the Pattern, a Fringe podcast. Why is Nina so invested in getting Tyler back? Because, I mean, she even offers to put up the money. Like, oh, Massive massive Dynamics will cover the ransom. Um, So, like, she's heavily invested. And then, you know, him basically saying, yeah, I took work home with me. And so it kind of, something doesn't add up in that area. Mm. Nina's a very intriguing character because... At least up until this point, and probably well, well into season two, you you are never sure of her, her of her allegiances. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This podcast network. <laughs>